I mail here. them all together, I'll just have the label on there, and then I just have to pay for them. I don't have to like sit there. Oh, hey, what about stamps.com? Guess what? Are they paying us to advertise yet? Vance and Chase have a fucking little sticker printer machine. We could use that thing for all the addresses. Yeah. Oh, that'd be sweet. I think we could definitely do that for sure. Yeah, ask him because oh, that'd yeah. be a lot more uh, professional. I guess. Dude, let's let's run our own merch business. I'll be the I'll be the guy. I wish I still had my fucking truck so I could be the merch runner. <laughs> well, the post office is a block away. So Adam, I'm okay. I'm pretty sure just a trunk on a car is good. But your uh, Cody, your post office doesn't have a history. Oh, that's true. That's true. No we need bullet to, holes. In it's that not a bomb shelter. <laughs> I I'm pretty sure the people at your post office are much angrier than I refuse you know, to go there because they're so scary. Yeah. They're the, so uh, scary. The uh, the old-looking architecture makes it a lot worse. Yes, definitely. I do like the sound. It's not even like that old of architecture. It's like mid-century. Yeah, it's pretty old. It's it, pretty. Yeah, it's old because that's. Uh, I it's mean, got that's a been fallout the... shelter sign on it. It's, it's been there well, fucking old. I'm sorry. I'm glad I know where a fallout shelter is when nuclear war happens. <laughs> is it gonna happen? Yeah. Ske- uh, what's his name? Skeet Ulrich's gonna be there. It's gonna be Jericho. Mm, okay. Uh, yeah, we don't even need soundproof curtain anymore, huh? Just no, blanket I, town. <laughs> yeah, my old uh, comforter with paint all over it. Just I love hung it. Her up there. Uh, I love it. That's all we need. I don't hear the echo like I echo, usually do. Echo. That's because the whole rest of the basement has been cut off from sound <laughs> now. Well, except this one little spot here. Well, that spot can suck my schlong. Your, so. your favorite cat, Jordan, Barbara, tried to climb up that already, and I had, Fuck to, yeah, had to get her. Good for her. Does she climb screens, too? Uh, not yet. Mm, not yet. Win- not she's y- going to. When the windows are open, mm. I'm pretty sure she's... Uh, All right. Like, remember up in my room, I have the crank window? Right. When that's open, when she was a kitten, she would try to climb up there, and right. she'd have to get hosed with water. That happened with Chad's cat, Animal. My brother Chad at his old apartment. The Eagle Point Apartments, in fact, right (laughs) down the road from here. I used to live there. There, Everybody used to live there. (laughs) They're a shithole. Oh, yes. And uh, one day, Chad came home from Arctic Glacier, where he was working, also right down the street from here. And he saw his cat hanging on the screen outside of his window. <laughs> Somehow it had popped out the bottom and just like reached around and climbed up there. And went, he has no idea how long it was sitting up there for. What him. floor like, was he on? The top, the oh, very top. Jesus. Oh, so shit. the third floor. Yeah. So he had. To I mean, it's not a skyscraper. No, but it's it's tall enough to hurt a kitty, maybe. Oh, oh yeah. I yeah. I mean, they can't just fall from any fucking height. Yeah. Apparently, like the middle heights are even worse for them because they can't go into their fall procedure properly. Like they can't Makes spread sense. out all their limbs and absorb the impact the way they usually could. Uh when I first moved into this house, so in the living room there was a screen that. I, we didn't realize it at the time, but it was, like, barely hanging on, right? Uh-huh. And my old cat, I wasn't paying attention. Somehow he knocked the window or the screen out, and all of a sudden I look over and I see, like, something jumping, right? <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, what the hell? And I go out there, He's he got outside and he's trying to get back in, but he couldn't <laughs> quite jump up in the window. <laughs> Fucking idiot. He's <laughs> like, what are you doing, dude? When my mom did daycare, a kid did that. Popped out a screen and barrel rolled out the picture window. He was trying to jump window. up there? Mm-hmm. 
Humans can't jump quite as high. And especially when they're toddlers and stupid. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Bumblebutt Podcast, the only podcast on the internet that uploads weekly. Who knows what it'll be about? Certainly not me. My name is Adam. Sitting across from me is Jordan. Hello, Jordan. Hello, Adam. How was your week? It was a pretty good week. <laughs> I'm not even going to lie. Did you find out anything new about baby Jordan? Uh, no, no new updates as of yet. Uh, no, just same as the last ultrasound, just, uh, healthy, he's growing, he's very big. Is she taking her prenatals? She is. Is she eating clean? For the most part. (laughs) Is she... The fox diet. Is she having a fox diet? She is. Excellent. Macaroni and cheese and... (laughs) Oh, yeah. Sweat socks? I don't know what you Damn right, bud. Uh, all right, thanks. Uh, thanks for being here, as always. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> also- I was gonna, hold on, can we ask them if they do any, like, uh, magical shit? Do you do any magic? No. Like, do you have no a midwife? spells or something? No spells. Okay. No midwife. Have do- you considered, like, the bathtub birth? Ooh, have you considered shitting it out in a bathtub? I think Amy looked into that, mm-hmm. and we were both like, well, we have all the marvels of modern oh, medicine. Oh, Western medicine so, is nice. You don't you want know? to risk the mother dying in yeah. childbirth. Yeah. That's pretty smart, actually. Yeah, no offense. Real. No offense. But, uh, <laughs> no offense to all you stupid fucking hippies out hospitals there. Hospitals are pretty cool. Do you remember that one video? I think you and I watched it where she's she's doing a tub birth, and, like, she's sitting there, and it just immediately, like, pops out, and then she's holding it. Nope. Do you remember that nope. one? It's, Was that I, on a cringe vid? Uh, it might have been. I, I think I've know. seen that one before, and it's like, how that just came out of you. How were you just like, oh, it's my baby? Yeah, it's, I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how the hell that happened. Oh, that's Yakapaka. Listen, also I'm sitting- ready to be in an, a hospital gown, just like, doctors, do your things. Right. You got a little beard net on. <laughs> You're having a good time. Damn also right. sitting here with me is Cody. Hello. Hello. How was your week? Uh, I've had better. Um, I'm I, I'm I'm to the breaking point. If I was a thermometer and I was grading my work, I'm running at like 130 degrees right now. I'm ready to explode. Your so. meter's all the way at the top. Yeah, I I, I think I'm it? cracking. Yeah, I I had to get I had a little eye problem on Thursday and Friday myself. Did you? Yeah, I is couldn't. It- was it that you couldn't see yourself coming into work? That's the one. That's the eye problem Thanks, I had. Dad. <laughs> no, I'm one. saying, shout out, if anybody's listening in Minnesota and you're looking to hire a good employee, Two hit me up. shot motherfuckers. Yes. I'll do anything. anything. Oh, really? You just got to pay me. Except for masonry work. Well, this isn't masonry, it's panel setting. Is it, do you No, pay? like my, the place I work is in desperate need of people because we're do just they like, pay? they pay. How much? 19. Don't tell me. <laughs> Don't tell me because I'll, no, I'll like do it. it. It's <laughs> just like the company is growing so fast. Like we just need people. Right. I, I, we need indoor jobs. I need yeah, indoor jobs. You're not going to get that in the See, trades. I want to sit down. I, I just, <clears throat> I'm getting to that age. We just, we need indoor jobs. We need indo. Cody, you're only like a year older than me. We need well, the indo. Well, I'm more weathered than you yeah. are. Yeah. Have you ever heard the Creed album, Weathered? Because it's fantastic. <laughs> See, you've had like 54 jobs. I've had... It's true. Uh, three, I think, since I've been 18. Jesus. Or maybe four. So, I'm a loyal employee. I mean, you have been at Wolzer for a grip. Yeah. Here's I, mine. Since I was 12 years old, True Value, Sportsman's Guide, Arctic Glacier, and Walzer. Four jobs. Four jobs. How many have I had? 
uh, Maves. I did telemarketing for like two weeks and I couldn't take it. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see. Best Buy. I worked for my dad. I don't know if that That counts. doesn't count unless okay. he paid you well. I mean, he did. Did you live with him? I did live with him. I, I was in high school. Yeah, no, that don't count. Okay. And then, uh, let's see, Green Mill, Best Buy, oh no, 3M, and Enterprise, then Walzer. So that's like seven different yep. places. Yeah. So it's not bad. I got a job from McDonald's but you when turned I was it down? like 16. Yeah. No, I was supposed to go in, but I got too high and I couldn't right. go in. <laughs> I said, fuck <laughs> it. I said, fuck it. So I'm not was... working there then. So you just went there and got the food and went home? <laughs> no, I literally went... said, I can't come in. And I never should. Oh, I worked for Target for a day, too. One day? <laughs> One day. No, I was working at Enterprise. It was like a 32-hour part-time job. Yes. I was like, okay, I need another job. So I took a full-time overnight shift at Target. Awesome. Then I realized they wouldn't let you go outside and smoke the entire eight hours. Oh, yep. And I said, nope, not doing it. So did you even make a full shift? Uh, no, I worked one entire night. Okay. It Dude. was like uh, 10 o'clock to fucking... Like what seven Till in the, the morning break or something? Yeah. <laughs> no, I I did that shit for like a month. The overnight seasonal help at Target. <sighs> I forgot. I worked at Sam's Club too. Ooh, I did that too. Wow. I did overnights at Sam's Club. Oh no! Because I did my internship at 3M. They didn't hire me immediately, so I worked at Sam's Club for a month, and then 3M called me and then gave me a full time job. So it was nice. like a transition nice. job. Uh, and you could go to that secret room and smoke cigarettes at the top of the mm-hmm. store. Yeah, you told. That I blew think you my said mind. That, on here. that blew my mind. Yeah. I couldn't believe you could do that. Yeah, because because <laughs> like the the overnight job thing, they don't let you outside. You're right? No, they do not let you outside. So I'm just like, like, you gotta let you smoke somewhere. Yeah, I gotta smoke a cigarette, man. Like you're working overnights, so you True. are doing anything you can to like keep your fucking sanity. That's right for that eight hours because society no longer exists for you. You're <laughs> sleeping when the rest of the world is awake. I like, you get home at 7 in the morning, and you know what? You crack a beer, you mow your lawn, and all of your neighbors look at you like you're crazy. But it's yeah. like, no, this is my afternoon. Yeah. <laughs> this is my- Dude, I got home, played Super Punch-Out, passed the fuck yeah. out till 5 o'clock. Perfect. And then uh, dreaded going it. back to work. Yeah. Yep. Dude, you know what I did when I worked overnights when I got home? Smoke I drank crack? a couple beers and smoked cigarettes mm. well i was watching curious george on pbs that a boy that good morning program fucking right i loved it and you know what i went to bed happy yeah okay yeah. well don't do that i couldn't do it anymore i'm sorry no 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 those days are far far behind all right we got to get into this cuz boys do it. this is going to be a long one i oh, contemplated Jesus. cutting it into four really i did but all of this shit was too good, and I couldn't get rid of a All single right, let's, fucking word. Let's get at it. Nobody minds a longer episode. I don't think so. Silk was Charlie's contraband of choice. First produced in China around 4000 BCE, the fabric was uniquely light, strong, and soft. As demand grew, so did cultivation of Bombyx mori larva, whose cocoons provided the raw fiber and the white mulberry trees which fed the worms. So it has to be that specific type of larva? Correct. Really? Okay, so is that, like, even current day, are they, like, responsible for all the silk? That's right. Really? Okay, interesting. Interesting. Silk became China's most valuable export, familiar to the Greeks, the Hebrews, and the Romans, who coveted the material but worried about its effects on the larger public. Historians and philosophers all agreed that silk was too feminine for men, and this sentiment extended to the Roman Senate 
which forbade men from wearing it in 1680. Well, that's fucked up. No, I was going to say, if only they knew of the Italian gentleman in the 80s, that's definitely not too feminine for them. Oh, Liberace? (laughs) No. I mean, you ever seen Scarface? Oh! Everybody's wearing silk. The the Italian Cuban (laughs) man? (laughs) Hey, man. Driving I-Rock Camaros, baby. Hell yeah. Silk feels good on your ball sack. I I bet. I'd have never tried it, but I would love to. So I'm wondering, at what point did the Egyptians steal it from the Chinese? Hmm, I don't know. Once they felt it on their ball sack, they're like, "Oh no, no, this is ours now." When you're riding Egyptian silk, right? Yeah. Well, that's what everyone says now, right? Uh, Or is it Egyptian cotton? It's Egyptian cotton. Okay. Well, sorry, Egyptians. Sorry, Egyptians. We're racist (laughs) against your textiles. The poet Juvenal. Not to be confused with the warrior poet Juvenile from New Orleans. Hell yeah. Further cast shade on his fellow Romans for sending their wealth eastward to an unknown civilization in return for revealing material he believed best suited for cheating adulteresses. Mm. So only cheaters wear silk. That's right. Only only lustful older maidens. (laughs) The development of the famous Silk Road... Not the infamous illegal Bitcoin for drugs and assassination website, but the real Silk Road between China and the Roman Empire suggests that people didn't really give a shit what poets had to say. They wanted silk. So do you think they named the uh, infamous dark web Silk Road after this because it was like an illegal trade thing? Assuredly. Really? Certainly, actually. How do... I've always wondered, how do these fuckers... Like that, do stuff like the Silk Road or whatever. Get so, or like, uh, what was the hackers program? Synonymous or <laughs> Synonymous. anonymous? Yeah, <laughs> and they had that like special sect of them that was like the bad hackers. The black, the black. Hat what did hacker. they call that? I don't know. I they, don't. I don't want to talk too much about it because guess what? <laughs> ah. I like being on the internet. I like all. But, of I, but I'm saying, like, how much time do they spend? To come up with these names for their whatevers. Oh, I'm going to say they spend enough. Like, like, do you, if you're going to create an organization, how much time do you spend coming up with a clever name? Well, how long did we spend on our name? Uh, Five minutes, maybe. Five minutes. There you go. I think you answered the question. It it doesn't matter how much time you spend on the name as long as it's a good name. It doesn't matter what it doesn't matter what you do. The wolves will eat you anyways. Okay, quick thing. How long did you spend on coming up with Druid? Uh I was not involved in that decision. Oh the band was named before I was a member. Oh all right. King James one of England almost drove himself insane in his desire to build a silk industry. He obliged all Englishmen to raise silkworms, and this was an utter failure. English conditions weren't as hospitable as Mediterranean-slash-Asian climates were for the delicate worm. Okay. And the population of England had absolutely no idea how to raise them to maturity. So do they need a warmer climate? Are they like, they have to live year-round? It's easy, It's way easier for them to do their shit in, the, in a warm climate. My knowledge of silk comes from World of Warcraft, where they have a zone... With larvae everywhere, and you got to collect the silk from them. Right. Shout out Summoning Stone. (laughs) And they made it worse by putting it on the map eventually, right? They did. Yeah. That's fine. It makes it easier. Yes. (laughs) King James also required Virginia colonists to plant 10 mulberry trees for every 100 acres cultivated. Is that where these larvae live? In the mulberry, yep. They eat them. They need them for... uh, 
uh, to make their cocoons and all that stuff. Do they actually have like berries on them, or is mm-hmm. that just the name? Mulberries. Okay. Can humans eat them, or just the I'm larva? actually not sure about okay. that. Okay. We'll we'll give some to Jordan see if he dies or not. Jordan, you're gonna be our <laughs> mulberry guinea. All yeah. Right. Tell old Grandma Fox to fire up the old mulberry pie and we'll yeah. See how it listen, tastes. man, if they're edible, she's gonna make a damn good pie. <laughs> so. Careful for silkworms, boys. <laughs> In the 1870s, the American silk industry remained weak, prompting manufacturers to demand government protection against the established French silk industry. The political result was a 60% tariff, which made finished products like ribbons and dresses much, much more expensive in the U.S. than in Europe. Kind of makes you wonder if this is why silk is so highly coveted. Yeah. In, Amer- a, in America, anyway. It's a history of luxury. It, is it still coveted, though? Oh, yeah. I, I mean, it's still it expensive, yeah. Yeah, it's Silk's not cheap. Still, yeah. I mean... I can't. I don't know how much how much silk one little worm can produce or whatever, but you probably need a grip. Of a lot them. of them, yeah. yeah. Protestant values reared their ugly head in the states at this time, and supporters <laughs> of the insanely high taxes on silk argued that the expensive, sensuous fabric fabric was a clear symbol of conspicuous wealth and a threat to the nation's masculine strength. I got to say this real quick, mm. Protestants. I'm really weary of them now mm-hmm. because. I talked about uh, the company that made Titanic, Protestant company. They fired all the Catholics. Okay. Only Protestants could work there. Oh, and that... Mm. So, yeah, I don't know. Wow. They're not as nice as you think. I guess not. (laughs) Wasn't the Titanic sister ship the Lusitania? No, it was the Olympic. The Olympic. And wasn't that one fine? Or did that sink too? Uh, they, They, like crashed it into another ship didn't kill it that's one of the conspiracies is that the uh the titanic was a failure and they shipped out the olympic to crash to then collect the insurance from it because the insurance companies didn't pay them for the olympic hitting another ship so they crashed it so they could get the insurance money for that christ so they pretend they did a swaparoo there they did a flipper only yeah they did like uh What's a Lindsay Lohan movie about twins? Freaky Friday. They did that. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> what is that movie? Is it Freaky Friday? No, that's the uh, Jamie Lee Curtis. Parent Swap. No, Parent, Parent swap. Trap. Parent Trap. Parent Trap. Yep, there yep. you go. They did that on uh, giant steamships. Huh. Fantastic. <laughs> Defenders of the tax also argued that it was a way to keep women in their place. Wow. Okay. Since the Civil War, women had been working for wages, starting businesses, asserting themselves in public, and spending money on luxuries. How fucking dare they? (laughs) A 60% tax would make even the most successful businesswoman look stupid if they bought silk, or so the logic of these men went. So I wonder, well, obviously this is very sexist. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I wonder if they kind of did that so... Because I'm assuming America was a huge cotton producer at the time. Oh, yeah. So they wanted them to have cotton products and not silk products. Mm-hmm. Makes Certainly. Sense. By 1874, scandal and panic had shattered New York's political and financial systems, ruining several of Charlie Lawrence's associates. It was precisely because of this that he decided to open up a new firm at 62 Wall Street. He lavishly decorated his offices with luxurious European carpets, yeah. gorgeous furniture and books, and high-tech stuff like a speaking tube. <laughs> <laughs> Connecting his private sanctum with that of his attorney, well-known Democrat Thomas Bracken. So is this basically like a fancy 
two cans on a string. <laughs> exactly. Is this that. what? It, hey, Thomas, are you still awake? <laughs> this is the fucking the playground thing where you can talk from one jungle gym to the other one. <laughs> Thomas, are you sleeping? It's fucking. I just hear Charlie. <laughs> Thomas, are you sleeping? <laughs> I had a nightmare. <laughs> yeah. I'm scared of lightning, Thomas. Can you help me? <laughs> Will you be my thunder buddy? <laughs> Charlie shared this space with his brothers-in-law, Robert and Lionel, not to be confused with Charlie's son, Lionel. Mm. The trio were drawn closer by the recent death of their sibling, newspaper editor Manuel M. Noah. Lawrence's official business was the United States Pipe Company. <laughs> a company valued at $500,000 that owned the patent on a new type of drain pipe made from sand, clay, and limestone rather than iron or ceramic. Sounds like that's going to just... Deteriorate? Yeah. That's what I thought as well. You know? (laughs) Clay pipe? I don't don't know. Believe it or not, the United States Pipe Company doesn't last all that long. Okay. (laughs) Okay. And I'm I'm not sure. I actually am not sure if it is because of the quality of the pipes. How much you guys want to bet? Shooketh. How much you guys want to bet there's definitely a porn called the United States Porn Company? Yep. Well, there should <laughs> the be. United or States Pipe, pipe, pipe Company. company. <laughs> pipe Company, yeah. Where Charlie Lawrence lays the pipe? <laughs> yes. When public construction stalled in the city after the population found out about all of the money ending up in the bigwigs' pockets, Charlie no longer could prove any of his income. There were no contracts being generated, so his fancy dancy pipes didn't really count for shit. <laughs> I don't think I'd call them fancy dancy, but... <laughs> Lawrence remained in New York, speculating on equities and real estate, gambling with the precious burgeoning U.S. economy. In May of 1874, he lost $800 in a stock trade. In October, Charlie's lovely wife, Zippera, bought a property on 27th Street and 6th Ave. A few weeks later, Charlie bought a three-story building at 243 West 22nd Street, east of 8th Ave. Together, the buildings cost the couple a cool $43,000, and this money was with no clear origin. So he's just hmm. liquidating his funds, kind of just yes. hiding it. Mm-hmm. He's trying to. You Somehow know? he's buying property and he's not pulling anything in. So how I the can, fuck is he doing that? I can tell you guys. I can't wait till Bumblebutt reaches for the skies and we can just dump our profits in property. Oh my can't gosh! Wait I'm it. just gonna spend it on diapers. We're Do- gonna no. We're gonna have a safe house for no reason. Have you guys oh, ever seen? Right. Have you guys ever seen the Reba Reba McIntyre show? Yes, who hasn't? Yeah, uh, have you also seen Shameless? Yeah. You know the guy that's on both of those shows? Uh, Van on Oh, the... yeah. He, he, he plays... is a fucking billionaire in real life from real what? estate. Yes. Really? Yes. He's like a real estate magnate. So why does he play a dummy in both of the shows? Why wouldn't you? If they're <laughs> also paying you to fuck yeah, around? I was going to say, he's probably fucking bored, Cody. Yeah. Well, you that know dude what made I hate? some smart moves with his Reba money. You know what I hate about Reba? Everyone's a dipshit except for Reba. Oh, yeah. She's the ultimate Mary Sue. I can't stop it, Reba. Moms love it because they I'm... all want to be... <laughs> they all think they're Reba. I'm sure Reba's plenty smart, but yeah. not everybody in the world's a dumb shit. No. Your husband, like his your... new girlfriend, your yeah. children, they're he, not all... His, Her ex-husband and his new wife is like the dumbest person yep. on TV. Definitely. Just like, come on. Foolish. Although Charlie was a completely legitimate licensed attorney, he appeared in <laughs> <laughs> he appeared in no high-profile cases in 1874. His financial brokering should have left him homeless and begging, but somehow he and Zip were bye-bye buying. 
gambling played an important part not only for the Lawrence's sketchy income, but also for their social standing. The game of choice was poker, which had become highly fashionable in the United States by way of New Orleans. Mm. Charlie and Zippera would host extravagant poker nights for all of the muckety-mucks, including one George Garcia Wolf, <laughs> the Nassau-based blockade runner, who had lost his shipment of goods he was smuggling to the Confederacy and was held at the military prison of Fort Lafayette until the end of the war. Ooh. So after the war, they just let him out. Somehow, George Wolfe had buddied up to Lord Lyons, the British <laughs> ambassador to the United States, and Lord Lyons was able to petition for Wolfe's freedom and the release of his <laughs> personal property. <laughs> the gold meant for the Confederates, which included coin, bills, and other securities, Worth over a million dollars today. Jesus. I wonder if they, first off, you got a lion and a wolf working together. Second off. Oh my, I didn't think ooh. about that. <laughs> Second off, um, I wonder if these guys knew that hillbillies on the History Channel were going to be looking for Confederate gold. Wow. hundred plus right. years after this time. So. And George Garcia Wolf had a <laughs> yeah. whole fucking free fortune of it. They're still looking for it. Unbelievable. <laughs> With this fortune, George started businesses in both New Orleans and New York City. Wolf climbed the social ladder, got himself an invitation to Charlie's America's Club, <laughs> the super special inner circle club started by Boss Tweed, mm. and bought himself a fine private stone residence about a mile up the road from Lauren. Also making regular appearances at the parties were Lewis and Henry Levy. Born in England, the Levies had grown up in Montreal. Their father was a tobacconist, and all of his boys branched out into all sorts of commercial pursuits. I almost thought these were going to be like the Jean guys. Levi. Oh, Levi's. Oh, I mean, it. it could be. It's spelled both the same. It's not. Well, it's not. I mean, there's a letter difference, but okay. Fuck off. <laughs> so these commercial pursuits the boys branched out into were importing, storage, and marketing of a patent hand fire extinguisher. Hell yeah. <laughs> this is the ones that make a huge mess, too, I think. Oh, yeah. <laughs> they were related to the Wolfs and Lawrences through a degree of separation with Abraham Hoffnung. We all remember Hoffnung from episode one. He will, in the future, try and buy Charlie's freedom from custody with a shitload of gold. Okay. He had wed their sister, Esther, during his stay in Canada, and her sister, Berta Hoffnung had married George Wolfe in Montreal in 1859. Jesus. So they're all fucking married. They're all connected. They're all kind of tied together. Yeah. What I'm trying to say is the three families were close. Mm. When the Levy's mother passed away, her two youngest children, Carolyn and Alfred, went to live not with their older brothers, who were bachelors at the time, but with George and Bertha Wolfe. This isn't like the origin story to uh, Batman's butler, is it? Oh! <laughs> hey, did you see they're making like a show about that or something? Alfred? About Alfred? Yeah. It's called Pennyworth. I think it's a new show coming out. Is that supposed to be his last name? Yeah, right? Alfred really? Pennyworth? Yeah. Uh, yeah. All I know is Robert, Robert Pattinson is supposed to be the new Batman. Um, I don't know about I've that. I've heard that for a while. Yeah. That actually doesn't bother me that much. I mean, they just released like the first quote-unquote trailer thing yesterday. Really? Yeah. Well, uh, we should shout out Stiglitz. Yeah, because I, Stiglitz? I, I, I saw he was going to Birds of Prey, Yeah, and I hear that is a steaming pile of shit. So, uh, comment on this episode and tell us if it, it is a piece of shit or not. On, st on Instagram, on Stiglitz Instagram, said please. 10 out of 10. Really? I saw a comment where he said 10 out of 10. Maybe he thinks uh, what's her name really hot. Margot Robbie? Margot Robbie. Is. She is hot. Abraham Hoffnung remained a private man. 
he never attended the poker games. And not only because he lived across the Atlantic Ocean in Liverpool. Unlike Charlie, Hoffnung never produced anything like The Devil's Auction <laughs> and didn't much care for going to the theater at all. He took gigantic risks, but only when the returns were equally as enormous. Sounds smart. <laughs> After the war, he had left the colonies for England itself, using his ties to British capitalists to establish a Liverpool importing business Training in guns, clothes, and cigars. So we're uh, in British, in Britain in this time. I'm assuming guns weren't illegal yet. Not yet. Nope. Not yet. In Do you fact, know when I they think it that? was. Uh, yeah, I think it was your duty to have a gun. Really? To protect the empire with okay. absolutely. I mean, makes sense, I guess. I've taken to calling the Wolfs, Lawrences, and Levies the three stateside <laughs> tentacles of Abraham Hoffnung. All right. And how how all three of them met originally is unclear. Culture, experience, and sensibility bound these three merchants. All three were from Jewish families that had migrated to England from the continent in the early 18th century and then scattered again to the U.S. in the very ends of the British Empire. These were some radical, scandalous people. You'll never believe what I'm about to tell you next. I can't wait to hear it. The wives and husbands mingled freely. They would stay in the same room and hang out together. Jesus. The wives even joined in the poker games every week. Unacceptable. Is it, do you know, is this like regular <clears throat> poker? Is this like I'm pretty sure Texas this is five, five card stud, I'm yeah. pretty sure. Right. Or what is it? Five card stud, seven card draw, or do I have it backwards? I, I don't know. Yeah, five <laughs> card draw, seven card stud. <clears throat> it's what nobody ever plays anymore. Yeah, just hold them. <laughs> yeah. Financial pressures likely pushed the stateside tentacles to start dabbling in crime. In the spring of 1872, George Wolfe abruptly sold his entire Manhattan household, <laughs> including elegant carved walnut and rosewood furniture, Brussels carpets, mm. clocks, candelabras, Florentine bronzes, Dresden china, fine oil painting, a Marvin Parler safe, and two Steinway pianos. What the hell is a Marvin Parlor safe? What the hell is a Brussels carpet or a Florentine bronze? I assume or a it's Dresden made in China. <laughs> would you use a carpet that was made out of Brussels sprouts? Because I would. I would lick it every day. <laughs> yeah. Are you Brussels sprouts fan? When they're made right, mm. they got to be like grilled right with all yeah, the right you gotta, shit on them. I hate when they're undercooked. Ugh. Oh, I hate yeah. that. I hate it so much. It's it. like eating a succulent. <laughs> Off air, I'm going to tell you two where to go for the uh, best Brussels sprouts you'll ever have in your life. Sounds good to me. <laughs> I bet it's a hipster joint. Shortly thereafter, the Panic of 1873 began. While the whirlwind raged, the courts rendered a $100,000 judgment against George Wolfe's firm, forcing him to flee the U.S. entirely. No legacies could save them. Lawrence, the Noahs, the Wolfs, and the Levies were all fucked by 1872. Mm. As the Depression worsened, Charlie formulated a new plan, exploit the flaw in the collection of customs he had observed during his time as an inspector. Smart. In 1869, as we remember from episode two, the Geterman brothers were famously charged with avoiding the tariffs on silk <laughs> and goatskin gloves by hiding them in shipments of clocks, which were subject to much lower duties. It's kind of amazing they do this back then, and like nowadays they would hide like drugs yes, in these yeah. items instead. <laughs> Listen, <so>. opium <laughs> really started to be smuggled in a lot around this time. Too. Really? Oh yeah. Okay, so that like on um, what's the show you like? The Peaky Blinders. Yeah. He has like that twelve foot pipe with yeah. like a tiny little hole on it. And he's smoking it. <laughs> Do people do that anymore? I don't think so. Because you used to need like a, 
not to sound racist, but like a Chinese uh, strumpet to light it for you while you lay down the pillow. You know what I mean? <laughs> I That's like my dream. I want to get so wealthy that I have to lay down and have somebody else light my pipe for me. Specifically a Chinese strumpet. <laughs> yes. I'll find one. I'll travel back in time to get one if I have to. <laughs> the Gietermans were able to get away with this by exploiting the inability of officials to assess the massive quantity of goods now streaming into New York. Charlie remembered that while the brothers were forced to pay a settlement to the government, they didn't receive any criminal punishment. They were seen as unlawful merchants and not smugglers. Abraham Hoffnung and his stateside tentacles would reproduce the scheme on a larger scale. Hoffnung would provide the silks from St. Etienne, France, pack them into crates, and ship them to Liverpool. From that port city, one of the firm's agents, William Benjamin, swore before the U.S. consul that the boxes contained jute, burlap, <laughs> buttons, and other cheap materials subject to low tariff. Makes sense. I, do they just, like, straight up not open the boxes and look, or just... That's kind of what it sounds like. It's like <laughs> yeah, it's burlap. All right, well, fucking burlap. Here we go. Generally, Thanks, bud. Generally, the customs officer, which would be on the take, mm. they would give him one box to look through, and that would contain the objects that they were supposed to. And then the other ten would contain the smuggled shit. I, I love hearing about old-time America because it's basically just like, what's the minimum effort we can put in absolutely everything? Yep. And that's what we're going to do. Mm -hmm. And just rake it in. <laughs> yes. It was Lawrence's job to slip the silks unexamined through the port of New York. As a lover of the stage, he acted his ass off to falsify his identity and his import. <laughs> Charlie's many friends, his parties, his political connections, and his charm all made him a talented corrupter. He had a way of tarnishing even men with the most unblemished of records. Mm. Even after his arrests, his reputation for being a party animal prevented officials from viewing him as a criminal mastermind. So he just got too fucked up. Yeah, he got too awesome, and everybody loved him too much. <laughs> <laughs> that guy's too awesome. He, There's he was, no way. He's dude, he just landed a kickflip. He's not fucking <laughs> smuggling and shit. He was fucking Spuds McKenzie before there was a Spuds McKenzie. <laughs> he's got the newest Druid album. He's fucking badass. <laughs> the unrecorded, unreleased yeah. Druid album. He's like, in the year 2018... <laughs> This band is going to be amazing, I promise you. He's like when Shkreli got that Wu-Tang album. <laughs> Ooh, I don't like that guy. All that remained now was to dispose of millions of dollars in silks. Mm. If any one man took possession of the textiles, officials would quickly realize that the paperwork was bogus, and the boxes may contain more than burlap buttons and corsets. To prevent this, the ring would sell a portion directly to importers such as Haas and Sons but also auction the silks to vendors through 16 accounts in fake names. I mean, that's just good business. When George Wolfe decided to leave New York City to run a commission business in New Orleans, where he may have received shipments or helped dispose of the contraband, Henry Levy hired a private trucking firm to pick up the crates and bring them to his place of business, from which he sold them under the table. Charlie also sold some silks on his own account to firms such as Alfonso & Co., <laughs> which dealt in artificial flowers, and Simmons and Fisher, a neckwear retailer. How did they have artificial flowers way back then? Because they're made out of silk, Cody. That's okay, right, baby. That's right. I, I guess instantly when I hear artificial flowers, I just think of, like, plastic. The happening, when Mark Wahlberg's oh, yelling, yelling at the plastic plants. <laughs> okay, that movie's obviously terrible, but apparently I haven't watched it in a really long time. If you watch it again... 
It's so bad. It's like really good. Come so on. It's That's like, what people are saying. Nowadays. It's like The Room. No, because that, I mean, that movie was, he really thought he was making a masterpiece. He Tommy was all really thought he was making something. But good. apparently Mark Wahlberg and Zoe, whatever. Yeah, they hated uh, it. Yeah, they, yeah. you can see in their eyes, they're like, can we just get the fuck mm-hmm, out of here? Because mm-hmm. so, Zoe Deschanel plays like, the most disconnected dipshit mother that's ever been born. <laughs> I need to rewatch that. Yeah, but they got a paycheck out of it. That's so. exactly, and that's what Mark Wahlberg said in interviews yeah. afterwards. So, too. do you think Samurai Cops better than The Room? No, I think The Room is like the best of those earnestly bad <sighs> movies. My favorite bad movie ever is Chopping Mall. I still have to see you, that. It's it's free on YouTube. It's so good. I, I mean, I still have to watch Parasite, which is a good movie. <laughs> yes. I, I gotta, it's a while before I get to chop it. <laughs> Charlie developed a working relationship with a young liquor dealer named Lafayette Graff. Short, dark, and with a beak like an eagle, Graff was the conspiracy's <laughs> only member born in the colonies. Born in Wheeling, Virginia, when it was a center for Virginia Unionists, Lafayette and his brother Abe set out for New York, where Abe married into the extended Noah family, mm. like everybody else does. Mm. In 1871, Charlie notarized Lafayette's passport application, and within a few years, Graf was a significant part of the ring. I suppose since Charlie is a quote-unquote attorney, <laughs> he can do that. And a notary public as yeah, well. Yeah, so, mm-hmm. well, apparently you can become a notary public nowadays with, like, an online application. I think so. so. <laughs> Dude, and those motherfuckers make bank. I mean, just, yeah. Just to like you set can, your, just to stamp something, it's like a hundred fucking you, bucks. But you, you have to find the clientele to come to you to do yeah. it. So. It's like, yeah, you, you know, know what? You get two of those a week. That's a nice supplemental income. What? Like they ten charge bucks five, each? Yeah, I was gonna say they charge me like five dollars <laughs> getting notarized at UPS. All it is, really? Is, all it yes. is is them proving. It's like basically, yes, we saw you send yeah. this send this message. It's just oh. proving that is not a forged signature. Yep. That's yep. literally all it is. Oh, as we talked about earlier in the episode, mulberry trees were forced by royal decree to be planted all across the colonies, but they never became common in the U.S. The problem wasn't so much the difficulty of cultivating the trees like it was in Britain, hmm. but more so the expense of unwinding cocoons and reeling the fibers. American laborers were never able to equal the skill and cost of Chinese workers, and domestic manufacturers were not even close to the quality of raw silk from France. Okay, See, so... I thought it was going to be the emerald ash borer. Oh, that <laughs> hey, that took out all of the trees on 7th Avenue in South St. Paul. Really? It used to be, when my dad was going to high school in South St. Paul, it used to be like a tunnel of trees. And then that thing came through and just decimated so, the whole thing. I'm assuming they don't produce any sort of uh, cloth at I think all. they just kill. They just kill? I think okay. so. Do you remember uh, Silk Spiders? No. Like, Mm-mm. I remember them from Iowa. Like, it seems like they'd only come, like, a certain time of the year. But you look at, like, a bunch of trees or bushes, and it, it'd be coated in, like, these elaborate spider webs that almost looked like like out of a movie. Awful. Like, they would cover them all, and then their nest is, like, on the inside of it. Terrible. Instead of, like, a regular spider web. It's really Burn it trippy. all to the ground. You know what? Do you remember army worms? Did you ever get infestations of those little brown caterpillars? Are they just like the ones with like the hard shell? 
And they're nah. always dead in your house? They're just little caterpillars. How is that all they yeah. are? I, Wait, I know up at Mille Lacs, they get them every year. Is it like the furry ones that yeah. are like black and brown? Yeah, and they, oh, don't, yeah. Move, they don't move too fast. No. no. I'm thinking Listen, of the they're, little they're black. They're just little fuzz little boys hanging out. Yeah, yeah. you're so thinking look, of the house centipedes. Is that what they yeah. are? Oh, I, you find those good. dead fucking yeah. everywhere. And you see them skitter across the floor mm, sometimes. Mm-hmm. By the end of 1872, an industry dedicated to spinning and weaving imported raw silk had become pretty well established in the States. There were roughly 147 factories dotting the industrial areas of the Northeast and stretched as far west as Kansas and California. These facilities produced over $25 million worth of silk, employed 11,000 workers, and paid these employees over $5 million in wages each year. That seems uh, really good. It's a little bit more than uh, the masonry world. Moreover, <laughs> the domestic silk industry was growing. Within two years, even in the midst of a depression, the nation possessed 180 factories employing 15,000 workers. 9,245 of them were women. Damn. The Silk Association of America was founded. Its main goal, the perpetuation of the 60% import tax, trying their hardest to keep this burgeoning industry strictly pumping money into the U.S. economy. Okay, so the government was okay with this. They wanted, I mean, this uh, this group, the Silk Association of America, were all about the 60% import tax. They Did, loved it. Do you think the government like, gave them a kickback or something? No, I think they. they just, I think the government appreciated it because it kept, kept business, it kept the money in the U.S. instead of importing goods from other countries. It makes me wonder, like the imported silk, are they getting it in like a, I don't want to say like a string form, but like more in a raw form? Now you will see. Okay. As awesome as all that sounds, and despite congressional protection... Americans still imported almost half of all their silk, especially expensive dress material, as most factories in the U.S. specialized in cheaper products such as thread, trim, and tassels. Mm. Like Jordan's got on his nippies right That's now. That's right. I'm right, bud. <laughs> if you wore nipple tassels here, I'd love you. <laughs> There's always so many different angles to look at things from. While members of the Silk Association might see the development of their domestic industry as bolstering the case for high tariffs on imports, there was little evidence that the locally produced silk would be up to snuff for fine clothing and handkerchiefs. The tariff helped hack down America's debt. It discouraged the purchase of expensive gowns, but people want to look fly. I mean, but that's, that's true. Okay. Just because I'm still fly. <laughs> All right, he knows R- it. All right, R. Kelly. He knows All it. All right, so, I mean, during this time, technically, if you were a man, you had to have a handkerchief hanging out of your pocket. Oh, yeah. Like, I think you'd be killed if you didn't. And what it's called gonna... a pocket square, Cody. Well, I'm saying you had to have one. And you needed a kerchief to Are blow you... your schnoz, too. <laughs> oh, yeah. Not everybody had a box of Kleenex my, sitting my, around. I think my grandpa had that, and I don't think oh, he, yeah. I ever seen him wash it. It's just hey, full of boogies. I'm pretty sure my dad still carries one to blow his nose in. Does he know about this awesome thing called a Kleenex? <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> I, can I was only there imagine. before I was here, so I should have okay. asked him. Think about this. A handkerchief guarantee it chafes your nose. Yeah, that's... It has to, right? I mean, it has. Unless it's silk. I, maybe. The first person to suspect the auction houses around the country were being flooded with smuggled silk was Horace Claffin. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like a fucking snitch. <laughs> Shortly afterwards, the Silk Association expressed concerns to customs officials, but with less urgency. 
as Lawrence's grade of silk didn't threaten the thread and tassel silk they were producing. Is his? Do you know? Is his grade of silk higher, oh, yeah. lower? Oh, his it's is like the, the creme tits. de la creme. It's the best. It comes okay. from the Lyon region of France, which is known for its for its fine silk. Mm. And they're like uh, seventeen foot cigarette extenders. Yes, yes. <laughs> hey, it protects you from the cancer, right? True, true. It is. <laughs> what do they call those, Jordan? They have a name. That you put your cigarette in the thingy. Yeah, they're filters. Oh, is that what they're called? Yeah. I thought they have a weirder... Anyway, go ahead. In any case, in the fall of 1874, several of the leading dry goods merchants in New York hired a private detective agency, Mooney and Boland, to investigate declining silk and lace prices. By October, the detectives began following the clues to their source. Old Mooney and Ballad are getting to the bottom of this silk shit. Mooney and they ain't playing. Mooney and Boland. Boland, whatever. Moon dance jam with power ballads. You definitely know when. Everybody you definitely know in school the teachers stone. like, is this Boland? Boland? Oh yeah, definitely during announcement or roll Mooney? call. Mooney. Mooney. That's easy. Stationing a man outside the Broadway warehouse of a firm selling discounted silk. The detectives observed the delivery of three cases of goods with the markings BC 926, <laughs> 927, and 929. My favorite years before Christ. Definitely. those <laughs> A lot of shit got done. Apparently that's when uh, the prophet Daniel was around, which I talked to you guys about. And I think aqueducts were also invented around Hell that. Hell yes. Oh, yes. Thank you, Romans. Tracing these numbers in the custom house records, they learned that the company had declared the goods as cotton corsets. Okay. They contacted the collector of the port, future President Chester Arthur, (laughs) who informed them that the importers hadn't paid duties for two years. Arthur also told Mooney that the goods had been consigned to D. Bamberger & Co., a company that didn't exist. I don't even think Bamberger's a real name. (laughs) I definitely know it's not our last name. It's like a hamburger, but you punch the cow. Bamberger. I feel like that's what Emerald would name his hamburgers. Bam! Bam! Burger. <laughs> oh, dude, I love Emerald. When Mooney asked Arthur who had made the entries on and signed the bonds on behalf of the fake man known as Bamberger, <laughs> his answer was downtown customs broker and man about town Charles L. Lawrence. Hell yes. Oh. The future president and current collector, Chester Arthur, was one of the leading grant supporters in the state of New York. Though Arthur secured the presidency of the United States in 1881, not a single person in the country Imagine such a position for him in 1874. A 45-year-old abolitionist attorney, classically educated at Union College in Schenectady. (laughs) Contemporaries described him as tall, strong, and well-dressed with a pleasant yet pig-like face and impressive mutton chop whiskers. Fuck I mean... Listen, you give me a candidate with mutton chops. Sure. You're you're putting them in? Oh, fuck yeah. Yeah. Ladies, he sounds very fuckable. Pig-like, certainly. (laughs) Hey, they come for 30 minutes. Did you know that? Pigs? Yep. That's what I heard. Well, I think it's the lady pigs. Is that true? I thought it was men's. How can they come for 30 minutes? I was going to say. Juice just shoots out for 30 minutes? I don't think. If he's pumping them full (laughs) of that baby juice for 30 minutes. Listen to me. I don't think women (laughs) of any other species can come. I think that's strictly a male thing. Using the female orgasms. Not in women, fake. but in girl animals, yes. Oh, okay. And I think All that right. the, the one reason for sex in that part of the animal kingdom is to make more animals. 
I they don't do it to fuck around. I think a pig and a dolphin are the only ones that can orgasm. Hmm. Women? <laughs> yes. Okay. Female. All right. I'll take your word for it. <laughs> and silkworms. And silkworms. <laughs> <laughs> Arthur's best asset was his memory. He knew every single Republican office holder, who had recommended them for their positions, and the constituency they represented. He spent very little time working at the port, showing up at noon or one, staying until two or three, and then leaving it to be run by a subordinate. <laughs> for his hard-working ways, he received over $2 million in wages adjusted for inflation between 1871 and 1873. When Congress took away the paltry bounties on smuggled goods in 1873, Arthur's salary plummeted to a measly $200,000. This was still more than three times the pay of any congressman. I mean, you know what? He sounds like an excellent president. Oh, yeah. He sounds like an excellent <laughs> Walzer employee, I, too. I feel so stupid. I didn't even realize this guy was a U.S. president. Chester Arthur? Yeah. I don't know. I've never heard the name before. Yeah, neither have I. Really? Yeah, I I, I honestly haven't. Well, he was in uh, Wrath of the Grapes, so. Was he? Yeah. Grapes of Wrath. They, hey. hey. <laughs> I nailed it. <laughs> I love movies about stinky farmers. That's my favorite. <laughs> New scandals across the country turned the heat up even further on both Collector Arthur and Charles Lawrence. In 1874, reporters exposed the whiskey ring, which revealed that a federal agent had received gigantic bribes by illegal distillers to shut down their competition. Wow, that's amazing, even before uh, Prohibition. Yep. Yep. They Hell even, yeah. yeah. Oh, it's fucking great. Just as damaging was the bizarre safe burglary <laughs> conspiracy, in which a bumbling crew of Grant supporters staged a phony robbery in a desperate attempt to silence a Democratic critic. Sounds like a long way to go around to, like, uh, whatever, whatever they're doing, silencing yeah. him. Yeah. Sounds like a weird way to do that. To, like, frame a... Yeah. Now, you may be asking me, why are these seemingly unrelated incidents actually super related and relevant? Well, the whiskey ring fiasco resulted in the Secretary of the Treasury being removed, and the safe burglary conspiracy resulted in the removal of the Secret Service chief, which was also run by, you guessed it, the Treasury. Okay. Shining light on the Treasury, all the little smuggle bugs started to scurry out. Mooney and Boland assigned a man to shadow Lawrence around town. <laughs> With Chester Arthur's full cooperation, they searched ship manifests from Europe and watched the docks for any ships from the Hamburg American Steamship Line looking specifically for large cargo halls of textiles. Okay, this, like what you're reading here, honestly reminds me of the second season of The Wire. Yeah! Because aren't the cops just like watching yes. them import the shit? Watching the stevedores yeah. get, their, get their shit okay. done. Then the detectives received word that an agent of Lawrence's had just made heavy silk purchases in Europe. They waited for import papers to be filed, and sure enough, Lawrence had eight cases of cotton hosiery <laughs> on the SS Pomerania, which steamed into New York Harbor on January 7th, 1875, carrying goods and immigrants from Hamburg, Cherbourg, and Plymouth. It sounds like it's a cargo full of Canadian people. Cotton hosers. Cotton hosers. Just the whitest Canadians you've ever seen in your life. Just a, a cargo ship full of them. <laughs> On January 10th, Detective Bolland headed to Lawrence's 23rd Street home, ignoring the record low temps that made it. One of the very worst days of the whole winter. He followed Charlie, 
hoping to catch him signing for boxes at the custom house. When Lawrence realized he had a tail, he cut through hotels and changed cabs several times. <laughs> Ballin kept Lawrence in sight until they arrived at the port, where the smuggler got lost in the crowd. Okay, isn't this the late 1800s? Yeah. So was he on a horse outrunning a tail of a cop? That's right. Why the okay. six Clydesdales following me? That's right. <laughs> Doesn't matter where you go. Just get us the fuck out of here, Mr. Taxi Man. <laughs> okay. Go on. <laughs> Since Ballin was too well-known around Manhattan to enter the custom house unnoticed, Ballin sent in one of his detectives. The man witnessed Lawrence signing the bonds for the release of seven crates of cheap socks, <laughs> which were consigned to the fake company of Freeman and Powell leaving one crate for inspection. <laughs> the customs officer that granted the release was Charlie's agent, Robert Diagnes. We've talked about him. Mm -hmm. Diagnes knew he was being followed, and after Charlie signed for the crates, he had them shipped to Hoboken, <laughs> which would give the entire ring roughly a week to get the hell out of Dodge. Isn't Hoboken, like, literally the worst city in New Jersey? Yes. Okay. Yeah, it's a dirty... It's like in Dude, Where's My Car? <laughs> we'll banish you to Hoboken, New Jersey. <laughs> Everybody makes fun of New Jersey, but I've heard it's actually, like, a nice state. Yeah, most of it's beautiful. Yeah, if you're a mafia member, it's it, great, I'm sure. It's the Garden State. <laughs> this is when Diagnes scribed the famous note from episode mm. one no further communication verbally or written you are followed and so am i let everything go to the devil export all you can just leave me alone and try to save yourself for the future alarmed charlie tried to distract detectives by having his overseas agents send a new shipment containing cotton corsets exactly as listed in the declaration very smart this didn't fool anyone <laughs> Between January 16th and 18th, Chester Arthur ordered the inspection of all boxes that came off the SS Pomerania. Most were found to contain... The finest silks for dressmaking, along with already-made suspenders and goatskin gloves. Street valued at $2 million adjusted. Ooh, Jordan, you would shit. have the largest goddamn boner alive if you saw this stuff in your drawers. Ooh. Oh, you know I would. Box Give me of them, suspenders? Yeah, silk suspenders, baby. <laughs> Listen, if they got little, like, hearts on them oh, or yeah. some kind of clever design. Stop oh. it. And guess what, boys? The only box that actually contained cotton corsets was the one Diagnus had set aside for examination. Oh, that sneaky son of a bitch. <sighs> In the meantime, customs officials overcompensated to the nth degree. They all tried to prove their honesty by catching any pissant infractions and treating them like smugglers. Meanwhile, collector Chester Arthur headed for the nation's capital to discuss the reorganization of the port, but actually he went to inform his superiors about the smuggling scandal. Smart. On February 4th, 1875, the grand jury indicted Robert Diagnes for complicity in a smuggling conspiracy. With Diagnes under arrest, Lawrence, Graff, and the Levy brothers disappeared from the city just ahead of grand jury indictments. Okay, gotta get the hell out of there. A few days later, the New York Sun became the first source to mention Lawrence's involvement, describing him as... The principles in the frauds. <laughs> Isn't the Sun like a tabloid <laughs> newspaper I think it is now. now. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> right. It probably started legitimate, and we're like, all right, well, we're going bankrupt. I prefer tabloids. Just Me too. Say that. Bat boy. The Sun connected Charlie with Tweed, of course. Both powerful, both friends, both crooked. 
The paper named him as the ex-secretary of the Americas Club. Other papers followed. On February 6th, the Daily Graphic added that he was the son-in-law of Mordecai. Ooh, is that anti-Semitic? No, because Ooh. Mordecai was a uh, a Christian man. Mordecai Noah was I, his father. I only know uh, Mordecai from the awesome movie Children of the Corn. Oh, oh my you god. You die, man. No, that's, is that Malachi or Mordecai? I think it's Malachi. Right? Malachi, yeah. well, whatever. They're close yeah, It's enough. close enough. <laughs> that might be racist. <laughs> By the time the grand jury got around to indicting Charlie and his co-conspirators, they were all safe in Montreal and England. Aha. Now was the time in 1875 for a man to make an easy escape. Rails crisscrossed the continent, allowing travelers to arrive in Canada, Mexico, or even Cuba in just how, a day or two. How the fuck does a rail go to Cuba? From the Cuban underwater uh, railboat. <laughs> Not to mention the steamships flooding the rivers, lakes, and oceans. So that's probably how. Oh, okay. Since the Panama Canal didn't exist yet and wouldn't for some time, the Panama Railroad offered ground passage from the Caribbean out to the Pacific. Wow. So uh. that has to be a boat, too. How are they going to get there? You take a boat to the land. Maybe. You take a train yeah. across the land. Oh, yeah. I didn't know. I didn't think that. That's what you were stuck on. I thought no, that no, was I'm the say- easy part. Yeah, no, I'm that part saying- makes sense, but <laughs> the, say- the rails to get to Cuba, yeah. just yes. the wording of that yes. confused yes. me. Yes, 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 yes. I see what you're saying. Back in this time, borders and custom houses were meant for guarding against foreign products, but most governments sought to attract rather than repel immigrants. Borders were not walls barring entry, just defining sovereignty. And to catch a fugitive required international cooperation at a time when countries were scrambling to win territory and retain crumbling empires. Yeah, I was going to say, I can't imagine other countries cared enough. that much. Yeah. You know. Like, uh, I don't care if they're, <laughs> if, if they're avoiding your taxes. That means yeah. nothing to me. I don't give two fucks. No. <laughs> Lawrence and his pals absconded to Montreal, which was the closest foreign city to his beloved New York, less than a full day by rail. It was also familiar. Henry Levy had grown up there. His brother Samuel still lived there, and Lafayette Graff's wife had been raised in Quebec her entire life. Are they Frenchies? Yeah. They're they're Quebecois. Yeah, that is that is like deep French Canadian territory. <laughs> is uh, isn't Montreal like is Montreal the best city in Canada, or am I thinking of a different one? Like the the. Or is it Toronto? I've heard Toronto's cleaner than hell. Okay. I don't know what that means. Is but. Toronto the one where there's like a city underground? It's like a clean New York, I've heard. Okay. Hmm. I need to go to Canada. Yeah, Canada, I know. Canada's cool. I, I want to go to Quebec City because it's like the largest walled city in oh. the world. But that's where all the Frenchies are. Yeah, well... <laughs> It's a big city with walls all around it. Uh, you're so going to come back cool. with a 17-foot cigarette holder. Definitely. That's all I know. I mean, yeah, it's not even going to fit in the and, space. And, like, the but... tiny little, tiniest little mustache with twirls on it. <laughs> Goddamn right. I'm, I'm going to be like Vincent Price on steroids. Oh, perfect. Ooh, I love Vincent Price. A spider's delight. Moreover, Montreal was known for intrigue. In its bars, Union spies had eavesdropped on Confederate agents. With over 100,000 people... Canada's largest city was a comfy place for Charlie to wait for the newspapers to tire of him. He stayed at the first-class Ottawa Hotel and lived it up for a bit. Yes, I, I would like uh, 
my eggs over easy today, <laughs> room <laughs> service. I bet, I bet Canada at this time probably served a, uh, a British breakfast, huh? Ooh. Tomatoes and baked beans. <laughs> a full full English. <laughs> yeah. Orange marmalade for everybody. Yeah. <laughs> By fleeing the U.S., Lawrence escaped American jurisdiction to the dominion of international law. In the States, Charlie was a wanted man, but in Canada, he was just another merchant. At this time, few nations limited immigration, as we mentioned, Mm -hmm. and most welcome travelers, especially if they had money. Although Canada had achieved their own home rulership in 1867, the British still handled their foreign affairs. I wonder if Canada didn't really care that, like, I'm assuming they had tariffs, but maybe they weren't as extreme as America. They just didn't care about about helping America like at all or just like it's not why would they waste man hours like collecting America's prisoners but think about it in this way okay America obviously wants this guy for smuggling Mm -hmm. Canada would they be worried about this man then ruining whatever with his smuggling in their country well guess what we're gonna find out about what they're gonna arrest him for and it's not smuggling is it stealing from Tim Hortons? The British, of course, were <laughs> untroubled by Lawrence's oaths of American citizenship. They still viewed him as a natural-born subject, possessing all the rights of an Englishman. The U.S. could ask Canadian officials to arrest and extradite Lawrence, but treaties with England define Canada's obligation as, meh, you can if you want to. <laughs> the Canadian government took this pact very seriously when it came to non-political crimes. For example, Canadian authorities extradited forger Augustus T. Birch (laughs) and arsonist Israel Rosenbaum, but on the other hand, they refused to give up famous shoplifter Catherine Martin because larceny was not an extraditable offense. I mean, okay, you got a forger, a shoplifter, and an arsonist. I feel like arsonist is a little bit more dangerous than the other two. Yeah, yes. Well, the physical property, you know. But to your nation's infrastructure, I would say the forger's pretty bad. Yeah. On February 10th, 1875, Lawrence received a telegram informing him that a grand jury had charged him with forgery, shattering his illusion that as a smuggler he couldn't be extradited. Just as unsettling... He learned Mooney and Boland had traveled to Montreal to arrest him. Damn, these guys ain't playing. These These guys are not fucking around. These are fucking the best Pinkerton. (laughs) These are like Pinkerton Terminators. These are like uh, Sam and Max. Oh. (laughs) All right, step aside, hoses. I've got a criminal to get. Charlie decided it was time to hit the bricks. Back to the motherland. England, ahoy. He wouldn't be out of the woods legally in his homeland. It offered the exact same diplomatic protection as Canada, but he had far more resources in Great Britain, including his brother Frederick and his shadow master, Abraham Hoffnung. (laughs) I love that shadow master. (laughs) From England, he could flee to Spain or another country lacking an extradition treaty with the U.S. Charlie remembered well the recent story of William Sharkey, a Tammany member on the lam for murder who avoided execution by escaping from jail and disappearing into the mighty Spanish Empire. The uh, the war with Spain's not that far off from here. Eight, no, it is not. Mm. For Charlie, the question was how to get from Montreal to England without meeting an American treasury agent. Steamers traveling to Europe docked at Halifax, Nova Scotia, over 600 miles to the east as the crow flies. Mm. 
The Canada-U.S. border was not straight, so anyone traveling directly from Montreal to Halifax had to cross through Maine and endure customs office. Do you think that's still a thing? I assume a railway now in Canada, you could do it without having to touch the U.S. The Grand Trunk Railway had begun building an all-Canadian rail line to Nova Scotia that curved around the tip of the U.S. border through Quebec and New Brunswick. But by this time in 1875, the route was not yet complete. Gotcha. Okay, well, you answered my question (laughs) there. (laughs) Thank you, Adam. You're very (laughs) welcome. On February 12th, Charlie abruptly departed his hotel leaving his friend John Morris with the bill. Well, that's just rude. (laughs) (laughs) And he headed up the St. Lawrence River. With Mooney and Balland hot in pursuit, he embarked upon a... Memorable sleigh ride to cross the frozen landscape of New Brunswick. Wearing a gray overcoat trimmed with the dark curly fleece of young caracal lambs from Central Asia (laughs) called Astrakhan, he set off to Halifax. Well, you just started a uh, new hipster clothing line, Adam. Thank you for that. We gotta get some. We gotta get some <laughs> Astrakhan. Hey, get some shirts printed on Astrakhan. <laughs> <laughs> Upon his arrival in Nova Scotia, he found a letter warning him not to go to England. The doctors in consultation advised the heir of Bermuda or the south of France for Mister Gush. He would possibly find the English climate too severe. Mm-hmm. Ignoring this counsel. On February 25th, Charlie boarded the steamer Caspian bound for Ireland, signing the manifest as Master George G. Gordon. (laughs) Lawrence's co-conspirators remained in Montreal, despite the best efforts of U.S. Attorney George Bliss to get them back to New York City. How do you get the title of Master? Uh, well, on an airplane, you can still call yourself, uh, Master Wangan if you want to. Really? Oh, yeah. That's one of the prefixes you can select. There's like general, doctor, president, <laughs> congressman, master. Master chief. I'm definitely going to be Surgeon Fox. Oh, yeah, perfect. Okay. All right. You can do a lobotomy in the air, Jordan. That's Ooh, what you do. I'd rather have a bottle in front of me than a frontal lobotomy. You know what? I, I, I said lobotomy, but I meant enema. Yeah. A little okay. different. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Opposite sides of the body. Levy almost got arrested. They really, really... Almost had him. Mooney and Bolland were on his ass, searching every rail car in Canada in conductor's caps. They finally found Levy bundled up snug as a bug, hidden in a freight car. The detectives pretended not to notice, and followed Levy all the way to Quebec City, where they had police arrest the fugitive. (sighs) Mooney and Bolland failed to appear in court, though, and Levy convinced the magistrate, probably with a bribe, Mm. to let him go on March 9th. He steamed directly to Europe. Why wouldn't they show up? While Charlie sailed on the Caspian, his brother-in-law, Robert Noah, sold him directly up the river. (laughs) Noah worked for New York City's Corporation Council Office, which was currently in the business of suing the Tweed Ring for the millions of dollars stolen during the prior decade's construction scandals. Once Lawrence was officially named, Noah rolled over and told investigators exactly where Charlie was headed and what ship he was on. That's (sighs) not very nice, Noah. Upon learning that Charlie was on the Caspian posing as one George G. Gordon, (laughs) Secretary of State Hamilton Fish consulted with President Grant and then cabled the U.S. Minister to Great Britain, Robert Schenick, to request Lawrence's arrest and extradition. So they really, really want this motherfucker. They want his ears. Schenick complied, as did the British, who were told Lawrence was a forger. When Charlie arrived in Queenstown, Ireland, police arrested him and brought him to London. On March 10th, 
He came before Magistrate Sir Thomas Henry, <laughs> who ordered him imprisoned in the Clerkenwall House of Detention, which, as we remember, is the place that was bo- that was bombed by IRA members. Uh-huh. Ah, you frisky Irishman. <laughs> <laughs> and this is, he was put in solitary, given minimal exercise, and allowed minimal access to family. Okay. While the Caspian was still at sea... Detectives Mooney and Ballin were already en route to bring Charlie back to the U.S. That's why they didn't fucking show up in court for Levy. Gotcha. <laughs> Who the hell is paying for all these guys' trips? This, the, a conglomeration <laughs> of silk okay. and uh, uh, lace uh, merchants. These guys, Jesus. these motherfuckers might as well have took a vacation to catch Charlie no somewhere. No shit. <laughs> Jesus. But they've been working. <clears throat> They have. They have. They're honest. This sounds like a real shitty 1800s version of Catch Me If You Can. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And that was a shitty 60s version. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, technology still wasn't I, great, but it was way better than it is back in these I days. I don't think there's a good version of that. Ah, man, I love that movie so much. It's good. While awaiting the English to process Charlie's extradition to America, George Wolfe secured Charlie the best legal counsel available. George Lewis, the premier fixer in England, earning this title by representing everyone from Oscar Wilde to the Prince of Wales. Damn. Jesus. That, uh, uh, I wonder if the Prince of Wales is related to... The Queen? (coughs) What's her? Princess Diana. Yeah, probably. Hmm. At this time, though, George Lewis was just a hungry young public defender, not yet known for wearing extravagant furs and a monocle to court. Lewis's first task was to dispose of incriminating documents, including a cipher revealing the secrets <laughs> of the contraband business in the U.S. The book contained about 1,500 keywords. For instance, Lawrence's code name was Mr. Gush. Mm. George Wolfe offered Lewis $10,000 adjusted <laughs> to get this code book from Scotland Yard. Lewis simply said he could get it for nothing, as he was on very friendly terms with the government's attorney. Lewis did exactly as promised, and Wolf burned the code book in his fireplace at home. Okay, smart, smart of you, Mr. Wolf. Lawrence's attorneys also contested his extradition. To bolster his case, Lewis sought the opinions of two very important <laughs> men. One was former Confederate Secretary of State Judah Benjamin, whose very freedom stood as tribute that the treaty between the U.S. and England did not permit the extradition of political prisoners. Otherwise, they would have sent his ass back, back home and not let him join Parliament. Mm. Lawrence also hired Edward G. Clark, author of a treaty on extradition, who wrote, I concur in this opinion. That's well worth the money. <laughs> Basically, Benjamin made a whole case, and then Edward Clark just said, Yep, I agree. <laughs> I concur, sir. <laughs> On March 23rd, Charlie was brought to the magistrate's court to have his fate considered by Sir Thomas Henry. Things get dicey here. When he was arrested in Queenstown, he was charged with smuggling. Now in court, the prosecutor argued that Lawrence had been charged with forgery and not smuggling. So what do you think the difference in charges are between that? Big? One means extradition back to the United States and one means nothing. Okay. So, uh, what about, like, prison time? Yeah. I would assume forgery is not. If, because forgery is an extraditable offense, he would get huge prison time back in the States if he went. Okay, alright. Either way, it didn't matter. A handwriting expert confirmed that Charlie had signed incriminating documents, and once a Scotland Yard detective produced the scrawled note from Diagnus, 
Sir Thomas had heard enough. <laughs> Do you have to refer to him as Sir, you think? I, I will just to be safe. I don't want him to haunt me. He ordered Charlie be returned to the U.S. Charlie's ring didn't abandon him, though. His family had already hired Edwards Pierpont to plead his case in New York, and George Wolfe agreed to hold Charlie's jewelry to prevent confiscation. Smart. Fearing a daring rescue mission, Sergeant Shaw of Scotland Yard helped Mooney and Boland escort Charlie from London to Queenstown. But instead of executing a daunting escape, they only found Hoffnung waiting with $1 million in gold to release Lawrence. It's a lot of fuck. How is he even carrying that? That's got to be like uh, fuck. Adjusted for inflation, okay. a million dollars. Oh, okay. I was going to say, like, does he have like a whole train freight full of gold here? <laughs> Yeah, just a couple cabooses just rolling up to his place. <laughs> when the private eyes said, heck no, it ain't worth it, Hoffnung hired a lawyer to accompany Lawrence and work on his defense with him on the trip back to America. I'm kind of surprised Hoffnung didn't do what they did in Fire, uh, fire Festival or whatever and offer to blow him. Oh, yeah, to release the water? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Mooney and Bolin threatened to chain Charlie to the bow of the ship if any of his friends or cohorts were among the passengers like the mermaid thing yes like the, yeah. the what is that called uh i don't know they always have a mermaid with her tits hanging out yeah. on the ship i don't know gosh that's gonna kill me it'll come to me right <laughs> after we stop what it's called on may 1st 1875 the detectives accompanied charlie on the steamer scythia bound for new york city on May 13th, the Scythia landed. The U.S. Marshals relieved Mooney of his prisoner and seized Charlie's luggage, which merely consisted of an old leather suitcase and a lap blanket. Okay, you know what? This my grandma probably had the same thing. The same exact <laughs> <Yeah>. accoutrement? <laughs> yeah. They then brought him to the federal courthouse on Chamber Street, where his two young sons embraced him. Taken before Judge Samuel Blatchford, Charlie was ordered to Ludlow Street Jail, where his man Diagnus was also being held. The marshals asked if he'd prefer to drive or walk the mile to the jail. Charlie chose to travel by foot, possibly to stroll along his favorite city streets after three months away. Fuck that. I would have rather rode on a horsey. Yeah, me Fuck too. Yeah. Me too, definitely. That's a mile walk. Are you kidding me? Yeah. Worldwide, newspapers blew up about Charlie's capture and extradition. He was finally crowned the Prince of Smugglers, and most agreed that he imported $3 million in merchandise cheating the U.S. out of an unbelievable $1.7 in taxes. What's what's really funny about this is that this, this time they really cared, but, like, rich people do this on a regular basis On nowadays. a minutely basis. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Reporters believed the conspiracy was very far-reaching and predicted Lawrence would assist the government in the prosecution of prominent businessmen and politicians. The country caught smuggler witch hunt fever. <laughs> In March, President Grant ousted Attorney General George H. Williams, whose wife had accepted a $30,000 bribe from Platt and Boyd to make sure her husband didn't prosecute them for customs fraud. In May, Grant personally admonished cigar smuggling customs inspector David P. Harris and sentenced him to two years hard labor. Mm. On May 18th, Charlie petitioned the president, complaining... That the U.S. attorney intended to ignore the terms of extradition and try him for smuggling instead of forgery. Grant asked his cabinet for their thoughts. New Treasury Secretary Benjamin Bristow was cleaning up the department after his predecessor. And he favored prosecuting Charlie for everything. 
I feel like a lot of these old-timey episodes we've had, there's always somebody who's, quote, cleaning up the department. That's because there's always somebody <laughs> fucking everything so up. So they clean up the department, bring in their guys, then they're corrupt, then they clean up them. It's yep. just like an endless cycle. They all think their little team of goblins mm. aren't going to be the corrupt ones. <laughs> Grant ordered a stay of all proceedings for now choosing to only continue to prosecute Lawrence for forgery. Grant likely wished the matter would disappear entirely, and the investigation kept up turning more and more established businessmen. Mm, there's a lot of tentacles to this. Oh, yeah. On 14 June 1875, the court finally arraigned the conspirators. It was the first time Lawrence appeared in the courtroom, and everybody wanted a look. Like a real smug prick, he showed up in a pair of smuggled goatskin gloves <laughs> and a white silk ascot. <laughs> I like this guy. While everyone else implicated in the smuggling ring was dealt with in the court system, Charlie's attorney, Stephen Clark, obtained a delay in proceedings until his lead counsel, Edward W. Stoughton, returned. <laughs> the judge acknowledged the complexity of international law and decided to put off Lawrence's trial until the court met again in September. Okay, a lot of delays going on here. Charlie waited in Ludlow Street Jail, and eight days later his stay got a whole lot better. Because on June 22nd, Boss Tweed was brought to jail for not being able to post a $4 million bail. What are you doing, Tweed? Come on. <laughs> Ludlow Street Jail, though, was practically a hotel. The sheriff ran the entire operation and received 75 cents a day for each of the building's 78 cells that were filled. <laughs> if you had $50 a week, you could have a large, fully furnished cell as well as the attentions of a personal waiter. Charlie and the boss had a hell of an incarceration. Mm, I wish you could still do this. You might be able to. I'm actually pretty <laughs> Hire sure you a can. Waiter in for private prison? prisons. I don't see why you wouldn't be able to. The very first legal dream team was established for Charles Lawrence. Edwin Stoughton, General Benjamin F. Tracy, and the entire firm of Stanley Brown and Clark. I didn't hear Jose Baez. Ooh, Ooh. yeah, he just missed out on this game. <laughs> Stoughton was the leader of the city bar. Tracy received the Medal of Honor during the Civil War, and Stanley Brown and Clark were the nation's foremost experts on smuggling cases. So what side did uh, Tracy fight on? Uh, our side. Our I'm sorry, side. the okay. union. The union. <laughs> okay, all right. The Dream Team's first task was to sway Solicitor General Phillips. <laughs> he had been chosen to determine whether Lawrence could legally be tried for smuggling since he was arrested for forgery. While Charlie had won a brief reprieve of trial, he remained in jail under multiple indictments with a million-dollar lawsuit hanging over his head. Mm. Hey, uh, Jordan, I just want to ask you, did you know that General Phillips, after this case, he created Phillips' milk of magnesia? Did you know that? So he's helping people take <laughs> huge dumps? Yes, he is. Fuck yeah, bud. He's drinking chalk and <clears throat> Solicitor General Phillips' milk of magnesia. <laughs> yes. On October 26th, the U.S. began its prosecution of Robert Diagnes, former deputy collector of the port. The government presented evidence showing that Lawrence, Graff, and others had smuggled silks and laces through the customs. Diagnes' guilt hinged on whether or not he received payment for inspecting only the crates actually filled with the items on the declarations. The key piece of evidence was Diagnes' note to Lawrence warning him that their ring had been uncovered. That's a pretty clear you cut. Do, you cannot do that, Mr. Diagnus. Don't write anything down ever. I was just thinking about this whole thing. Like, were pens invented yet? Because if Probably they, quills and, okay. and if ink. They, if they just had pencils, 
They could just erase Fuck all yeah. of that. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> the note not only suggested his awareness of the crime, but his knowledge that Lawrence was not F.L. Blanding, <laughs> the false name he signed in the custom books. Sergeant Shaw of the Scotland Yard even made a guest appearance in court to prove the note was found on Charlie's person when arresting him in Queenstown. Damn, no- he went all the way from England. Basically just to, just to say that. Yeah. All right, Shaw. Damn. Just to prove, like, you can't twist this any other way. <laughs> this is what we found on him. <laughs> on November 9th, after five minutes, the jury returned with a, f- with a verdict of guilty, which Diagnos accepted without seeming surprised. The judge sentenced him to two years hard labor and a $10,000 fine. That's all he got. Well, I'm saying this time, hard labor, they ain't fucking around. No. Yeah, and I'm guessing a $10,000 fine ain't no fucking joke. No, 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 no. no. Just as Diagnus entered prison, boss William Tweed startled the nation when he escaped from Ludlow Street Jail. On December 4th, Tweed finished lunch, then walked out of the building, entered a coach, and drove to the countryside, accompanied by his son, the warden, and a keeper. Wow. That's, that's how you break out of jail? Now, this wasn't the odd part. It was the fifth time Tweed had been permitted a little <laughs> field trip since his arrival. The group walked up Tweed's brownstone mansion and chatted with family members on the porch. Tweed then stood up and said he wanted to go inside and see his very sick wife. After five minutes, the warden grew restless and asked Tweed's son to retrieve the old man. The son went upstairs, but soon returned, calmly stating, Father's gone. (laughs) He stayed gone for ten months before he was captured fleeing from Cuba to Spain using a false passport under the name John Secor. Mm. Oh, God. He didn't put Boss Seeker on there? (laughs) (laughs) Of course the boss had learned the laws of extradition from Lawrence while in jail. After all, his intimate friend was an experienced, although unsuccessful, fugitive. I don't know why, but every time you say boss tweet, all I can like envision him as is like he looks like the penguin. Sure. Like, like Danny DeVito like, penguin? Like he has a big belly and uh-huh. just like somehow the tuxedo stays tucked in. Well, guess what? He was a fat man. <laughs> all of this only strengthened the U.S. Attorney's case to proceed with Lawrence's prosecution. Well, let's fast forward an entire year. Charlie's dream team kept getting delay after delay after delay. Hell yeah. On the 4th of July, 1876... Happy 100th anniversary, America! (laughs) America was celebrating that centennial, and Charlie was celebrating his 43rd birthday. Here's my question. Okay, so Charlie was literally in a jail cell this entire time, correct? Yep. Well, a jail cell, quote-unquote, with a waiter okay. and all the food and guests he could ever want. But that, that was my question. Like, usually when lawyers do a shitload of delays, it's mm-hmm. because you're out on bail. But it, I guess if he's living in a basically a hotel room... Then... And he didn't really have the assets to post the bail anyway. Okay, makes sense. Observers began to wonder whether Lawrence would ever see justice or be forced to pay a penalty at all. The courts began to sweat pushing Charlie to make a deal as hard as they could. Judge Benedict ruled that the government could try him for smuggling as well as forgery, and two more judges upheld this ruling. All of it didn't mean shit, because the possibility of political upheaval between Great Britain and the U.S. and the brilliant dream team of attorneys, all Charlie ended up having to do was post a $15,000 bond. The only person in the entire smuggling ring that ended up doing any time at all was Robert Diagnos. A whole lot of nonsense that ended up not meaning anything. 
but threw so many people's lives into chaos. Wow. Okay. Well, you know what? Huh. Let's throw it out for Mr. Diagnos because... He took his, the fall for the whole ring. He yeah. did, and a whole generation of old ladies took his last name. So. Yeah, as their first names. Yeah, so. Agnes. <laughs> and I mean, I don't think Agnes even got that bad of a penalty. No. Two well, he, years and a $10,000 fine. Yeah. Let's put it in this perspective. During this time, yeah, Charlie didn't really have to serve much jail time, but during this time, we still had Monopolist. And that is the truth. So he might seem bad, but in the grand scheme of things, there's a lot worse people who are like in the country right at this point. The only reason he's considered bad at all is because he got caught for it. There's people still making money and fortunes off of this right now. What's weird is I feel like during this time from all we've ever talked about, so many people are so anti-government. Yeah. They don't trust them at all. So yeah. it's like weird that they cared that this guy was ripping them off. Well, they were ripping, but it was the whole, you have to realize when America was only a hundred years old and less, mm. people cared very much about the experiment. They yeah, wanted, true. they wanted the economy to succeed. They wanted the country to succeed. Right. Mm. Nowadays, people are, they're pretty far removed from that entire struggle, and they don't really give a shit. I always feel like during this time, if you weren't buying something a little shady or doing something maybe slightly shady, then, like... You, you were getting just, ripped off, probably. Yeah, you're mm-hmm. just an idiot. Just a fool. <laughs> no, that was great, though. Um, do you know what happened to Charlie after this? Did he just... Charlie just continued to live his life in England, That's all he man. Did. Yep. Hell yeah. He just, he just. I suppose killed. he had all the money. Didn't really need to do any of this shit. Probably just lived out his life drinking martinis or whatever they drink in England. And... All of this dumb shit. It only happened because of a few weird presidential elections, mm. like the Grant elections. Uh, the Treasury came under scrutiny, and then the Customs Houses came under scrutiny, and then everything started to fall apart. So basically, the microscope came down on that little sector right mm. as Charlie was doing business, and that's why he got caught for it. That's what I think, anyway. I feel yeah. like, well, honestly, I feel like that's the story of every president we've ever had is, like, what makes me not look bad? Yeah. Like, if, if Charlie did the results don't matter. Yeah, I was going to say, if Charlie didn't make the government look bad, they wouldn't even probably care. Exactly. Honestly. Like, they probably, they just want to use They probably him hire to, him. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say, they want to use him to make an example to make themselves look better. Yep. So. And in the end, conviction or no conviction, mean nothing. Just no. the press cycle. Just showing that they were doing something to stop smuggling. And they turned him into the little Jewish figurehead for it. <laughs> I guess technically he got out of America, so they probably maybe didn't care quite as much. Yeah, he's so, all right. Well, go hey, that's gonna do our. That's gonna do it for our boy, our little three-parter on Charles Lawrence, mm. the Prince of Smuggler. I need to look Hell up a yeah. picture of him to see if he's handsome or not. He's not that handsome. He's, a ba- <laughs> he's just a balding little guy. Is he? Yeah. Okay. He's not well. that hot. Ah, <laughs> uh, all right, boys. Well, if uh, if anybody else thinks little balding men are not that hot, you can tell us about it at bumblebuttpodcast at gmail.com. What's that, Adam? Bumblebuttpodcast at gmail.com. As always, follow us on Facebook and Twitter at no. As a, <laughs> did I say Twitter? You did say Twitter. I did already. No, you just said no, follow just, us on Twitter. As always, follow us on Twitter at Bumblebutt Pod and on Facebook and Instagram at Bumblebutt Podcast. We also have that hot ass Patreon up mm-hmm. there down, don't we? And uh, guess what? Uh, uh, What's that? Uh, 
all our people are about to get our very first shirts. Hell aren't they? yes! Woo! We uh, we're gonna we'll go into the details probably on uh, once I actually start getting one of these goddamn print companies to start working with us. But yep. yeah, we've got shirts will be in the very near future, and very everyone near. will be able to purchase them. Yeah, for right now, we're sending out the first. Whatever. To our patrons, yep. yeah. And they've supported that, us since the beginning, so they're getting a free fucking shirt. Hell you. Yeah. Yes. So sign up and maybe <laughs> surprise gifts like this will happen. Maybe. In the future. We take care of our people. That's right, baby. They take so care get of in. us. Get in at every level. Any yes, level yuck. you want, get in. Hmm. All right. Also, boys, now it's time for the most important part of the show. At least if you ask Cody. Ooh. The iTunes review. Hell yeah, and uh, Jordan's threats are still coming through. Good. We've had we've had two new five star reviews, one oh. written, one oh. unwritten. So we thank you written. very much. Yeah, read it. Uh, it's from Jenna Pulala. I think that's how you say Jenna it. Jenna Pulala. <laughs> I don't know what to title this. Five stars. Perfect. That's the best title ever. <laughs> yep. Fan since the first time I heard y'all on Creeper Real. Ooh. I don't mind the random rambling like the one Facebook comment. It's pretty entertaining. <laughs> you guys are funny and sarcastic. Also, five stars because you guys sang Teenagers too. Oh, yeah, Jordan. <laughs> you and I sang some MCR the other week. You're did you? Hell really yes. Okay. All right, excellent. Jenny Pulala. Thank you very much. Thank, thank you, you so thank much. You. Seriously, thank you. Jenny Pulala, you are safe from the threat. I hope that's your real last name. I honestly do. You can poo all over my lala. I don't know what that means. All right. Uh, well, shit, ladies and gentlemen. I think now is the time of the show. Where we gotta say goodbye yeah, until we next do. week. Oh. Hell yeah. So, I think that's gonna do it for me, Adam. That's also gonna do it for you, Jordan. Thank you, Jordan. Thank you, Adam. It's also gonna do it for Cody. Thank you, Cody. Thank you, Adam. Alright, everybody. Have a nice weekend, unless it's Tuesday. I'm gonna go the fuck to bed. <laughs> oh.